0: Back when I was an academic, I didn't teach Dante. I taught, as you probably know, 19th century American lit, some 19th century British lit in survey courses, and 20th century American lit. But uh, I always believed that I had one goal as a professor. I should take whatever I'm doing, (laughs) Jane Eyre, Absalom Absalom, you name it, and I should shatter the thing into a billion shards and leave them on the floor and walk out of the room. And I fear that's what I'm doing to Canto 20 of Inferno. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that slow walks through Inferno passage by passage. We're in Canto 20, as I said, of Inferno. We're in the fourth pouch. We're amongst, well, I told you, the soothsayers, although we don't know that yet. Virgil's about to tell us that, but somehow Dante has anticipated it because he knows why these sinners have their heads twisted around to the back. And he understands why they're crying, which sets him off crying. And I have a feeling it's because he is a future teller of what happens to you after you die in much the ways that they are future tellers. So the irony is thick. The shards are everywhere, and we're going on. Lines 25 through 51 of Canto 20 of Inferno. Why indeed I did cry, leaning against one of the stones of the hard ridge, which is why my escort said to me, are you still just another fool among so many? In this place pity is still alive and well when it is as dead as a doornail can any guy be less pious than the one who brings such passion to divine judgment lift up your head lift it up and gaze at the one who disappeared into the opened earth right in front of the eyes of the thebans at which they all cried out what's the hurry amphoraeus why take off from the war now but he didn't stop and fell all the way down, right down to Minos, who seizes each one. Check out how he's made pecs out of his shoulder blades, because he wanted to see too far out in front. He now faces behind and has to walk a backward path. See Tiresias, who changed his form from a man to become a woman, right down to the last detail of her body. Then he had to once more smite the two entwined snakes with his staff before he could take back his masculine plumage. Aruns is the one who puts his back against the other's stomach. He lived among the hills of Lunai, where the citizens of Carrara hold the dirt in the valley shelter. Lived in a cave among all that white marble, from where he had an unimpeded view of the stars and across the sea. We're gonna stop there in the middle of Virgil's speech because the next part of Virgil's speech is much more difficult even than this. This passage is packed with classical references. Virgil really lets loose here with his classical figures. So let's just take this passage first in its opening six lines, which may be the most difficult part of all of Canto 20, and then the three classical figures who come along with their heads turned backwards on their necks. The pilgrim admits crying. Why, indeed, I did cry, leaning against one of the stones of the hard ridge. So, you know, don't fault me. I saw these people twisted around. I was so sad and overcome with grief, I started to cry. And my escort, Virgil, said to me, Are you still just another fool among so many? Virgil is super tough, On our pilgrim, right here. It has often been said that this is the only time Virgil ever makes a remark like this. It's actually not true. Another one is coming ahead of us. But it is true that Virgil is super hard on our pilgrim. Are you still just another fool among so many? Why is he so hard on Dante? Why is Dante crying? Is Dante truly crying because the human form has been contorted in some way? Or is Dante crying for other reasons, for, as I suggested last time, poetic reasons? And why then does this poet, Virgil, this classical exemplar come down so hard on our contemporary poet. In fact, Virgil is going to control this canto, but more about that in a bit. Let's just look at these lines for a second. They're all kinds of problems. Are you still just another fool amongst so many? In this place pity is still alive and well when it is dead as a doornail. This is a tough phrase. I've given it a colloquial twist here. What does that mean? Anyway, it's such a weird paradox. But in other words, okay, so pity is best dead in hell. Let's say that's a simple way to say the paradox. And does he mean in this place as in in hell this is the truth or does he mean in this place in this particular pocket amongst these particular fraudsters pity is still alive and well when it is dead as a doornail it's weirdly stated as a paradox and then i should let you know the next two lines the Fifth and sixth line of this passage are incredibly garbled in the Florentine. Can any guy be less pious than the one who brings such passion to divine judgment? I'm just going to tell you right now that I have followed Petrochi in his text as I always do, and these lines are translated sort of as he translates them. This is difficult stuff, and Virgil, um, I'd like to say, uh, intentionally garbles his poetry. That would make really nice sense in this Canto 20, but I don't think I can get there. I actually think we've got a little bit of a textual problem running around here, and there's probably some garbled words in transmission in this passage, but there are way better scholars than I who could speak more fully to that problem, let's just say I'm going to leave it at my translation, which is essentially to castigate our pilgrim and say, you know, hey, if you're going to cry over the judgment of God, you're pretty impious. You're not really pious toward God because this is divine judgment. Virgil doesn't say God. He says divine judgment. Again, Virgil has a hard time saying the word God, if you remember. But this is as close as Virgil can get, mostly a couple places a little closer, but about as close as Virgil can get in that he is aligning the punishment here with a divine retribution. And he's saying, well, you can't cry about what God does. You can't bring this kind of passion, this kind of emotional overflow to divine judgment. But if that's the truth, and if my translation holds, then automatically the pa- passage is weird because, remember, In the last passage, Dante said, well, maybe somebody with palsy could be this contorted, but I don't believe it, and I've never seen it, so don't pay attention to that. Just think about how much I'm crying. So then Virgil undercuts what just happened in the last passage. Dante says, if you find that unbelievable, go ahead and just focus on my emotional state. And then Virgil cuts the legs out from under that. This is one poet sawing off the stool legs out from under another poet, and I think that's very important to the passage i think it's very important to canto 20 and i think it's important to virgil's speech which we're going to get to now let's unpack it before we talk about it this passage begins the longest single speech of virgil's in all of comedy canto 20 includes the biggest expanse of speech it starts here with are you still just another fool among so many in this place but he's still alive and well when it is dead as a doornail, and it goes All the way through line 99. I should tell you this is the longest single speech of Virgil's. Virgil has more lines in other cantos. In Canto 11, remember the map of hell when they sit down and have to get used to the stink of hell itself. And Virgil sets in and launches into his discussion of what is ahead of them. There, Virgil speaks for 90 lines, but not consecutively. He speaks lines 15 through 66, then the pilgrim gets in, and then Virgil speaks again, line 76 through 115 in Canto 11. So a again, 90 lines there, uh, 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 several fewer here, but that's a divided speech. We're now entering the longest speeches Virgil ever gives, and what does he do? He lines out three classical figures coming, and let's just talk about these, who they are. He says, lift up your head, lift it up, gaze at the one who disappeared into the open earth right in front of the eyes of the Thebans, at which they all cried out, what's the hurry, Amphiraeus? Why take off from the war now? But he didn't stop and fell all the way down right down to minos who seizes each one check out how he's made pecs out of his shoulder blades he's turned around so that the protrusions, his shoulder blades, look like his, his uh, pectoral muscles. Check out how he, he's made his pecs out of his shoulder blades because he wanted to see out too far in front. He now faces behind and has to walk a backward path. And Virgil's spelling it out for you, who this is and that they're, who this is classically and also what the problem is, that he tried to see the future. This is a reference to a character in Stasius's great poem, The Thebeid. In the Thebaid, Amphiaraus. Essentially, doesn't want to go to war against Thebes because he sees in the future that it will be his own downfall. He is one of the seven kings, in fact, the most noble of the seven kings who wage war against Thebes. We've already seen one of his compatriots, Capaneus. Remember, Capaneus stretched out on the burning sands in Canto 14, committing his blasphemy against Jupiter. That is one of the kings. Here's another one. This poor fellow. Fellow, sees ahead, sees that he's going to be killed in the Battle of Thebes. He hides himself. His wife, Euryphele, basically takes a bribe, reveals his hiding place. Off he goes to war as he's riding his chariot toward the walls of Thebes. The ground opens up and down he falls. He rides his horses all the way down, right to Pluto's face (laughs) in Stasius' work, and so ends up in hell as he is here. Virgil points out the first figure, which is a figure out of Stasius' poem. Then comes the second figure, Tiresias. See Tiresias, and there's Virgil's language. How much imperative is in here? Lift up your heads. See Tiresias, who changed his form from a man to a woman, right down to the last detail of her body. Then he had to once more smite the 2 entwined stakes with his staff before he could take back his masculine plumage. This is a reference to Tiresias, a Theban soothsayer from Ovid's Metamorphosis. In fact, there's much more to say about Tiresias, but this passage seems to be arising from the Metamorphoses from uh, Book 3, lines 316 through 38 along in there. What happens is Tiresias comes upon two snakes that have entwined together. He strikes them apart or pulls them apart, and he is instantly changed into a woman. He lives As a woman for seven years until he comes upon these snakes again. Again, he separates them and is changed back into a man. So he's now lived as a man and as a woman. And so he is a fit judge to the contest between Juno and Jove about who has more sexual pleasure, a man or a woman. And Tiresias says a woman, thereby agreeing with Jove, Juno then strikes Tiresias blind because he allowed Jove to win the bet that women have more sexual pleasure than men do. Juno strikes him blind and Jove gives him the, uh, the gift of future telling of prophecy as a kind of, I don't know, what do I want to say as a kind of recompense for agreeing with me, but oh dude, you got struck blind. Sorry about that. There's a uh, we should say in Virgil's speech, there's a bit of a twist at the end of it. It says he had to he had to once more smite the two entwined snakes with his staff before he could take back his masculine plumage. The word there is p e n n e penne in Florentine, and it means beard. So plumage, as in you know, he had to he had to separate them to become a man again and get a beard back. But you should know that there's a play on p e n e penne which is penis in the florentine and so there's a vulgar play on that word and thus i've left it ambiguous before he could take back his masculine plumage his beard or (laughs) what's in his pants it's a vulgar joke that virgil makes at tiresias's expense and finally the third figure irons this is an etruscan soothsayer he predicted pompey's death and Caesar's triumph. Ahrens is the one who puts his back against the other's stomach. He lived among the hills of Lunai where the citizens of Carrara even today, ho oh, the dirt in the valley shelter, lived in a cave uh, among all that white marble from where he had an unimpeded view of the stars and across the sea. This figure is out of Lucan's Pharsalia, book one, lines 584 to 638. Notice when we come down this list, we have a figure from Stasius, a figure from Ovid, a figure from Lucan. We have those three classical figures and clearly three distinct classical works being referenced. And here's the part that's wild being warped. Let's talk about that. Virgil says, lift up your head, lift it up, gaze at the one who disappeared into the earth right in front of the eyes of the Thebans, in which they all cried out, what's the hurry? You should know that the passage Garbles Stasius's poem just a little bit. When amphiraeus runs his chariot down into the open pit in the Stasius poem, it is Pluto who says, "What's the hurry?" Down in the (laughs) when the horses and the chariot come right up against Pluto, Pluto's like, "Hey, what's the hurry?" You hear now. The passage that Virgil is saying has garbled what pluto says with what the thebans say he didn't stop fell all the way down right down to minos so there's a reference to comedy remember minos the connoisseur of sin who wraps his tail around everybody this Piece of Stasius's poem is being wrapped in a reference to this poem, Comedy, who seizes each one. Check out how he's made his packs out of his shoulder blade because he wanted to see too far in front of him. He now faces behind and even has to walk a backward path. You should know that this figure is not negative in Stacius's poem. He's the most noble of the seven kings who wage war against Thebes. This figure is not, in fact, a, a negative figure in any stretch of the imagination in Stasius's poem. What's going on here? Why is he being turned into kind of a coward? You know, the earth opens up and they all cry cry out and make fun of him, and down he goes. And instead of stopping at Pluto, he stops at Minos who seizes him. As if Minos is the Pluto of this world, But, but we saw Plutus, didn't we? Clucking like a chicken already, or was that not Pluto that was Plutus? Curious, warped into comedy, shifted from a positive figure in Stasius to a negative figure here, made fun of, and the passage itself is a bit of a shifting away from the passage in the epic poem itself. And that same thing happens with Tiresias, another Theban. Tiresias is not treated as a negative figure in Ovid's Metamorphoses. No way. In fact, he's seen as somebody who has a kind of great power to have lived as both a man and a woman, and in no way is he seen as some negative as here, that is, some weird cross-gendered person. And Dante seems to make a great deal out of what happens with those snakes. He had to once more smite the two-entwined snakes with his staff. The word in the Florentine is verga, and Robert Hollander makes a lot out of this word. The word is really something like magic wand. Tiresias doesn't have a magic wand in Ovid. But the word used here is much more out of uh, casting spells, wand-like word. Think Hogwarts. Think about taking this passage and making Tiresias much more of a wizard. And besides, Tiresias wasn't a future teller at first. He got that as a compensation for letting Jove win the contest against Juno. This passage is a little warped out of Ovid. And Aaron's more warped out of Lucan's Pharsalia. True, Aruns did predict uh, Pompey's death and Caesar's triumph, but in... Lucan's Pharsalia, he doesn't live in the hills of Lunai. He lives in Lunai. He lives in the, in the town itself. And he doesn't live in a cave made out of white marble. He lives in the town. And in fact, it says he had an unimpeded view of the stars and across the sea in Virgil's Passage, which seems to bl- uh, make him out to be an astrologer, that he tells the future because of the stars and that kind of thing, because of his wide vision. But in fact, inside of the Pharsalia, he doesn't. He divines the future through the flights of birds, you know, augury to seeing birds fly and, and interpreting it as the future and also through the innards of animals, dissecting them, pulling their innards apart and claiming that you can see the future by the way their innards are arranged. That's how Ahrens does it in the Pharsalia, not by looking out at the stars in the sea as if he's some kind of astrologer. What is going on here? Why are these three figures warped out of classical tradition? Maybe it's more important to ask who warps them. Almost every commentator says Dante warps them, and I suppose that's true. In the end, behind it all sits our poet making this whole thing up, and so Dante shifts around these figures out of three great classical poems, Stasius's, Ovid's, and Lucan's, changes them around to suit his own matters. But it's important to see who's saying it here. It's Virgil. Virgil is retelling their stories, and as he retells their stories, he warps them into damnable figures, thereby changing the narrative out of great, codified, canonized classical works. Virgil's doing this. Yes, of course it's our poet in the background, but I think it's important right here to stop and say, look what's happening. A poet is rewriting other poets. Virgil rewriting Stasius, Ovid, and Lucan. And a poet, Dante, is rewriting Virgil rewriting other poets. In other words, we have entered a hall of mirrors of poetic references in which we A, have to be extremely learned to catch the way the stories have been warped and B, once we realize that they have been warped for comedy, we have to sit back and say, why? None of them saw the future in order really to gain much. I mean, Amphiraeus saw the future and tried to run away from it and then was kind of forced back into it. tiresias didn't see the future until it was given to him as a gift by Jove. And Aaron's, yes, he predicted. Dick's ultimately Caesar's triumph, but he's not trying to gain anything fraudulently. In fact, none of these figures see anything fraudulent in the future or behave Fraudulently toward telling the future. None of these are like some palm reader on some downtown street where you live. <laughs> you come in and and he or she, you know, plays you up a little bit. Oh, I I think maybe you like cake. No pie. No brownies. No candy. 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 Yes, that's it. Candy. Right. You know, judging your reaction to what he or she is saying to get the right answer out of you none of them is doing that they're not changing coin for the future in fact the metamorphosis in this passage is of poetry itself remember i told you every canto of fraud has small metamorphoses in it Hmm. the metamorphosis here is of classical text who does that metamorphosizing (laughs) is that such a word who does that virgil who's behind virgil yes dante the poet but virgil Virgil is fa- playing free and loose with classical text because Dante is playing free and loose behind him with fat classical text. Dante is allowing his classical master to rewrite other classical masters in a kind of crazy world in which soothsayers are poets. Poets are truth tellers. Dante himself is telling the future of what will happen to you after you die. And the entire passage, do you feel it? Is shattering around your feet in a complex irony. And if you think this is bad, wait till Virgil keeps going, because the next thing Virgil does is almost unbelievable. Poor Virgil, he's about to be twisted, his own neck is about to be twisted round, so he sees the in the passage that comes on oh, what Dante does to poor Virgil it's sad in some ways and yet part of this really high-end astute ironic game about the nature of poetry the nature of classical sources the nature of writing itself and how writing itself is a predictive act Wow, we want to talk more about that, so you got to subscribe. Come back. There's more of 20 to come. I'm not done shattering this thing. Please subscribe to this podcast. Give it a rating. Make a comment about it. That would be fabulous. And otherwise, I will see you next time for the continuation of Virgil's longest speech in comedy on the podcast Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you soon.